Welcome to the latest episode of Season 2 of Football Uncovered. In Season 1, we took you inside Blackburn, Leeds, Portsmouth and Liverpool, FIFA and a lot more. heard about extraordinary stories of football chaos, cock-ups and outright corruption. This season we're going inside eight more Premier League clubs as well as having two special episodes, one about the life after the Premier League and one about the very future of club football at the highest level. This episode is all about the future of football. And Nick, permission to swear? Yes, permission granted. Fuck me, what an incredible week it has been for club football in Europe. What's happened in the Super League breakaway since Sunday? You couldn't make it up, it's been astonishing. Probably the biggest story in European club football in the past 70 years. And we're going to take you inside the week's biggest story. I'm your host, Will Brazier. And with me, as you've heard already, is Sporting Intel's Nick Harris, Nick, have you managed to take a breath? Yeah, just about, but what an absolutely bonkers week it has been. I mean, we'll get into it shortly. We also need to tell the listeners that we recorded a Future of Football episode just days before this incredible story broke with our special guest, Tarek Panja of the New York Times. Tarek is absolutely the man inside this story and has been for years, literally. Tarek is in this episode because our chat remains hugely relevant, but we've also added topical updates of the last few days because this story has been changing so quickly and so dramatically. We needed to get on it and update it before this goes out. It's absolutely mad. And as listeners know, this season we are joined by a special guest. That guest is Tarek Panja. He's got a fantastic book and is the author of Football Secret Trade, a book about the dark underbelly of the global football transfer market. And, as you'll come to know, is a specialist in the goings-on at FIFA, UEFA and sports politics in general and has followed the Super League closely for years. Welcome, Tarek. Good to be with you, guys. I'm a huge fan of football's underbelly, so happy to be with you. Right, Nick, you are the man that I've wanted to chat to ever since Sunday. What the hell has happened? Talk me through it. So Sunday early afternoon, Martin Ziegler at the Times did a story saying that the Super League was back on, that five clubs from England were going to be involved in this and that there were going to be 11 or 12 clubs involved. By Sunday evening, it was six English clubs. It was Manchester United, Manchester City, um, Liverpool, Chelsea, Arsenal and Tottenham and six other clubs from around Europe, the two Spanish giants, Barcelona, Real Madrid and also Atletico from Spain and then in Italy, Juventus and the two clubs from Milan, that's 12. And then into the evening you were thinking oh god not this again another negotiating tactic for more money from the revamped Champions League and then extraordinarily the clubs start dropping bombs on their own Twitter feeds and on their own website saying we are founder members of a new Super League and you think oh my goodness this is really happening so by late Sunday night you think this is it there is going to be a Super League by Monday they're sort of staggering as the government pile in against it as the football fans from around the world supporters trust from all the clubs come out against it politicians come out against it it becomes a massive global story um, the president of UEFA uh, Alexander Sheferin uh, denounces the, those involved as snakes and liars. The opposition grows and grows and grows. By Tuesday, Pep Guardiola is publicly saying it's a bad idea. Kevin De Bruyne, Marcus Rashford, people are coming out against it. Gary Neville and Cara on Monday Night Football had absolutely eviscerated it. Um, by Tuesday night, the clubs are withdrawing and the whole thing's in pieces. And as we record here on our Thursday for a Friday broadcast, we've got Florentino Perez of Real Madrid last night on radio saying it's not over it's still going to happen. People are asking him 
what he's smoking. It's just been a monumentally extraordinary roller coaster of a week. And um, I think it's dead for now, definitely. It's dead for now, but will it come back? And this and the history of Super Leagues is what this episode is about. So let's get into it. Right, specifically today, we're going to look at the future of club football and how it's increasingly becoming the preserve of a few dominant super clubs who have over the last sort of 20, 30 years got more and more share of the money, particularly from the Champions League, um, and how they increasingly want to have control of the game, have even more money, lead to an even bigger gap between them and the rest of football, and sort of examine, is that healthy? Is that a good thing? And to do this, I think it's instructive to look at sort of the last, since since the formation of the Champions League, since 92-93, which you could argue is the money era of football when when this really started to this trend really started to happen that the bigger clubs got more and more money and more and more power so we can look at how that's evolved over the last sort of 20 30 years where we are now particularly with the proposed revamp of the Champions League from 2024 onwards we've, we've got a very good idea of what it's going to look like there's been a few hiccups uh, just uh, last week and at the time of recording by the time this goes out things might have moved on a bit so bear that in mind but look at that proposal and how that is so far removed from the old style Champions League in 92 and before that the old style European Cup and is this what we want football to be in the future you know who's going to make the money who's going to have the power is this what we as football fans want to see so that's specifically what we're going to discuss today love that um even as a Birmingham City fan, as depressing as times are at the moment and as we go into our 11th season in the Championship, the thing that drags you through even the darker days are the, the 5% of hope of, I mean, you were talking about it the other week, weren't you, Nick, about you know there might be that one domestic cup or one time you get into Europe. So these plans might scupper them, but when we look into it, the restructuring of the Champions League, is that just a, another ploy at the moment for the clubs to get more money? Uh, yeah, I mean, basically, it's a power grab and it's a money grab. And uh, I can't really see how it's good for the vast majority of fans of the vast majority of clubs. I mean, UEFA's a, a body of more than 50 countries. Each of those countries has got, you know, dozens, if not hundreds of teams playing football across them, uh, replicate that around the world. And you've got thousands and thousands of football clubs playing uh, professional football and hundreds of thousands of footballers and tens, if not hundreds of millions of fans. And we're talking about a power grab by essentially a dozen or so, perhaps 20 of the biggest clubs principally in Europe, wanting more and more of the money. And these clubs are increasingly owned by billionaires, nation states, people who, who really have got no traditional interest in football. And is it right that club football is going to be dominated by this very small group of people and their sort of desire to get more money and more power. Tarek, for you, is there sort of a particular period or model that you relish as a fan of the game? Yeah, and I think the reason for this might be because I think we all, as adults, think everything was great when we were kids. I don't know, there's some psychology to this. And, you know, I really liked football a lot more than I currently do when I was... um, you know, a young boy or a teenager or something, you know, it just was really exciting um, at the time, particularly, you know, if you didn't travel yourself at that point, you learn about the world, all these exotic places, these names through the football clubs. And at that point, I'm talking about sort of late 80s, early 90s, 
it was really exotic because the matchups could be anyone against anyone across Europe. You know, Vladik Kavkaz somewhere in Russia, you've got to get a map and then look, look for these places. And it was kind of pre-internet as well. And ally to that, which I think every football fan would probably agree with, is the games are exciting when it's a knockout because of jeopardy. Someone is going to get knocked out. There is no um, respite. That game, that result will send someone through and or someone home. Uh, and the European Cup that I really enjoyed was that every game mattered. Um, and I understand why the clubs don't like it because, you know, you could send them um, the biggest team home after the first round one or something like that. But that, for me, is the, the kind of pure joy um, of football on any given day, etc. And so, yeah, that, that period when it was the European Cup um, was really exciting. And then, I guess, it then moved to the first Champions League point in 92. It wasn't, it, to me, it was that, it, was, it still had that excitement because um, the game wasn't as stratified as it is today. You didn't have, like, just five teams who were going to thrash everyone or, or a group of ten. And it was geographically spread. You know, I remember the time when Panathinaikos of Greece could get to the semi-final of the Champions League. And that, that was quite exciting. I think they played Ajax in 95, Glasgow Rangers, you know, the East, some of the Eastern European teams would go deep. Gothenburg were quite good. I remember, you know, Jesper Blomqvist, you know, he broke his nose. He had these two uh, cotton wool buds in his nose and he was terrorising, I think, Manchester United at the time. Uh, it was really exciting. And, and, and like a kid, it was quite um, uh, a very educational experience. Maybe I'm a bit of a nerd for, for geography, but you do learn about these capital cities, these places that you hadn't heard of before. It, it didn't seem so kind of, um, I guess, artificial, packaged. It's a bit dull now. And I guess might be an old man talking, but all of these events seem a lot more kind of closed and polished Um than they used to be. Even the stadiums all start to look the same now. These stadiums are going up, and I guess they're safer and all of this stuff and, you know, good. But, yeah, it just seems a bit contrived now, a bit dull. Well, I'm going to sound like a complete dinosaur, but if you strip away money, um, asset ownership, foreign billionaires, um, leverage takeovers, sports washing, nation states, and just concentrate on the, the sport itself, the football. Why are we supporters of football clubs? Why do we like this game? What is in it? in terms of, you know, loving the game and following the club that you follow, then it's about glory, basically. It's about winning things. It's about competition. It's about having an era when the European Cup, for example, was was a knockout competition for national champions, not called the Champions League, where the vast majority of people in that competition are not champions. And again, as Tarek said, it's about jeopardy for me, where a single match can lead to somebody getting knocked out. That is the beauty of it, that... Two clubs from vastly different backgrounds on any given day or two days over a two-leg tie can come together and one of them can go out and then you you have genuinely interesting, fascinating spread of winners. So, you know, this is, go back to a period when Benfica could beat Real Madrid in the final or Celtic could beat Inter Milan, when Feyenoord could win the European Cup, followed by Ajax three times in a row, when Forest could win it, Nottingham, tiny little Nottingham Forest, where I grew up, could win it twice. Stau Bucharest could win it and Porto, Eindhoven, Red Star Belgrade. If you're just talking about pure sport and giving 
the hope there for fans of all clubs that one day you could win the biggest prizes, then for me, that would be the era. Take away all the money and the commercialisation and that would be the era. A, a competition for clubs, for champions, knockout. I mean, I've crunched some numbers about what it was like before and after the Champions League era and I sent it around to you guys before, but in the past 28 years... The Champions League has largely been the preserve of what we'll call the super clubs. 15 winners from just seven nations. And in the 21 final since the millennium, it's basically been dominated by seven, sorry, eight super clubs and Porto. In other words, in 21 years, the only winners have been Real Madrid, Bayern, Milan, Liverpool, Barcelona, Manchester United, Inter, Chelsea, and then Porto. And then in the 28 years before the Champions League, the winners came from 18 different clubs in nine different countries. You had winners from Spain, Yugoslavia, Italy, the Netherlands, Portugal, Romania, England, Germany, and Scotland. You had Red Star Belgrade, you had PSV, Ajax, Feyenoord, Porto, Bucharest, Villa, Forest, Manu, Liverpool, Hamburg, Bayern, Celtic. I just think if you're talking about football being accessible and having the hope of glory um, for all football fans, then that was a better time for me. Whereas now you've got increasingly, you know, a globalised game where the biggest clubs can leverage more of a global audience and, and the focus is just on a few really, really powerful clubs who want more money, more power, and the rest of the clubs can sort of just go to hell. So... I guess the, what we're discussing today is what is the point of elite club football in the future if that's how it's going to be, run by a few handfuls of massive clubs wanting power and money? Do you think, a bit of a tangent, but in terms of like our football pyramid, how sort of catastrophic could it be for that? Just because one of the lads I know, Spencer Owen, obviously started Hashtag United and like they're bringing in so many new eyes and new fans to the sort of lower leagues of football. And, you know, it's absolutely fantastic to see, whereas once, you know, it was sort of an older man's occupation where they'd go down and watch their teams. But they're bringing so many new eyes into that. Would that sort of almost ruin this sort of dream that you could start in the 14th tier of football and work your way up to the Premier League? Yeah, I think for as far as the super clubs or the big clubs are concerned, of course, I think they want to destroy the pyramid because it's a business. And this is kind of at the heart of all of this. It shouldn't be just a business, but... It really is, and we've kind of allowed it to happen. When I say we, I guess the structures, you know, state or European Union, whatever you want to call it, there is a social dimension to football. Nick, Nick's kind of talked about it a bit in, in what he said, but these clubs mean a lot more than like a biscuit company or a rivet company, et cetera, but they are treated that way. You know, there's so much passion, and it, it it's such a driver of people's emotions and their lives. Perhaps you can argue sometimes too much, but they mean a lot. And they haven't been protected at all. There have been no protections. So these owners, this breed of owners now, I mean, a lot of them, I read an interview with um, in The Athletic with James Pilotta the other day, and he kind of said, oh, I didn't know anything about football at all. So why did you invest in it? He invested in it because he thought he was going to make some money out of it, whatever these guys say. And maybe, yeah, and I'm not going to say they're not going to enjoy it because once you're in there, you're in, and that crowd is in there, there's the atmosphere, and you own this thing. It must feel good. But that is not what brought them to these clubs. Um, and maybe that was always going to be the direction of travel. I, I don't think so. I think there should have been some sort of um, regulation here, either at the EU level or national level, to protect some of these foundational principles. But the ship has sailed a bit. I don't know if that can be brought back. Nick, would you reckon? I agree. I mean, I think I've been doing this job for 25 years and we've been talking about 
governance of football in England alone for all the time that I've worked in it, and it's never moved on. You've had successive governments claiming that at some point they'll look at a regulator for football or an independent ombudsman in this country. It hasn't happened here. It doesn't happen pretty much anywhere else. I think Tarek's right, the ship sailed. And also in terms of the pyramid, forget, ultimately, if we take this to its extreme logical conclusion, then the pyramid is dead. Because when you're talking, I know we've name-checked the Glazers, but we can look at Stan Kroenke at Arsenal as well. No surprise, they're both Americans. But if you look at the structures in Americans, when you have closed shop leagues where there is no relegation and you're guaranteed X percentage of the revenues that come in and they're huge revenues and you're guaranteed to make a profit as well as having asset appreciation on the value. That's the model that they're used to. That's the model that they like. That is ideally probably the model they would like to see in place in elite European football, a closed shop Super League, which ends hope, competition and aspiration for everybody else. I think that is the end game. And and I guess it's a case of how long is it going to take to get there rather than will we get there? And obviously I'd like to think that we won't get there and you could go back, but, you know, that horse has bolted. The other thing that I found kind of interesting is that this is like a moment in time. It's a snapshot. This is where we are today. And, you know, we mentioned, I don't know, Aston Villa, for example. If with a fair wind, Aston Villa would have been a super club. They're just not at the right time. So you had this period of um, sort of audiovisual growth, TV growth, if you want, all this money pouring in. And you just happen to be in the right place at the right time to be some of these guys as super clubs. I mean, the classic example, what Manchester City is a great example. Until 2008, they were not by anyone's measure a super club. They were a really nice family club. People enjoyed Manchester City. Um, as a as a regional football club, but I would say you know they were up and down, etc. And then I sort of liken it to there was an advert for the national lottery. Um, I think in the nineties, where there is um, I think what is supposed to be God <laughs> and a finger coming down from the the sky, and there's a bunch of people, and the tagline I think was "It's you," and it happened to be Manchester City. <laughs> was the you and all this money poured down upon them and they are now at the right time a super club it's not because they've got an enormous fan base it's just they they happen to be extremely wealthy extremely successful and in that elite band at a time when we are having these discussions now if you close this and pull the drawbridge up that's that set. So Nick, we're coming up to a, a restructuring point at the moment. Obviously, there's still lots of speculation on how that will look like, not just now, but in the future. But these sort of stories have been rumbling on for years, and I know you've been covering them. What was the first breakaway that you covered? Going back to 1998, and a guy came to London, a guy called Rodolfo Hecht, who was uh, the uh, the head of a company called Media Partners, And he'd been talking to uh, Liverpool and Arsenal particularly. He said he wanted to have a breakaway Super League. It would consist of two divisions, 16 teams in each. There would be a mix of 16 founder members and 16 others. That immediately set alarm bells ringing because the founder members, of course, would be the big clubs, um, which back then would have been Arsenal, Manchester United, Liverpool, Juve, Inter, Milan, Barcelona, Real Madrid, all the usual suspects. Um, and these clubs would be guaranteed at least a three-year tenure in the league, and they may be replaced by other clubs if long-term performance on a media partner scale was overtaken. So again, it was very much, it was part closed shop, part 
open shop, but it was very much hinged on the big clubs. To, to show how long ago this was, the figures seemed to be absolutely fantastic. If this went ahead, um, they would maybe make as much as 16 or £17 million a season, each of the clubs, which seemed like huge money at the time. Um, the other 16 clubs would come from uh, from each of 16 different countries. Uh, they'd be domestic league winners. So there was still a little bit of the old sort of old school stuff. But again, the founder members and the others, it was all about giving more money and more power to the established clubs. Now, it was no coincidence at the time that Rodolfo Hecht had spent many years working for um, Silvio Berlusconi. So, you know, perhaps if I'd been a little less naive in, in 1998, I, I would have been more sceptical of the fact that Berlusconi's man was now promoting an idea that seemed to be putting pressure on UEFA to rejig um, the Champions League. But I obviously asked him about this and he seemed to be fairly convincing that, you know, he wasn't just a stalking horse for Berlusconi to get more money for Milan. But that was, yeah, 1998. So we're talking about 23 years ago and pretty much without exception, all the different iterations of supposed Super League since have followed more or less the same pattern big clubs in the shadows talking about restructuring leagues to get them more money and more power and inevitably UEFA has rejigged the Champions League format a number of times along the way to give them more money and more power um but yeah it's been going on a long time it's still going on today and the slow but inevitable consequence of this is more money and more power for the biggest clubs which Again, for the reason we've discussed, I don't necessarily think is in the interests of the vast majority of football clubs or football fans, or indeed, ultimately, for the game. Tarek, how many different versions of a, a European Super League have you reported on and can you remember? Well, I'm a bit younger than Nick, so, so <laughs> I don't know go as far back as then. But there's been a few recently, and there's a reason for, for that. But to go back a little bit is partly to do with... Um, but Berlusconi, devil's advocate here, is a little bit more of a visionary, I guess, than the people who were running UEFA back then. They were just weren't smart. They didn't see any of this coming. And they often don't. They still get blindsided by this stuff too, too often. And the thing that got Berlusconi's goat was, I think it was in the late 80s, there was a match. And it was, I think Napoli would have been the Italian champions. And I think they played Bayern or someone in the first round. And the point was, hang on a minute. Those are the, were at the time arguably the two strongest leagues. Serie A certainly was. Don't know, maybe Bundesliga as well at that point. Um, and it was like, hang on, we're going to lose one of these champions of these two big leagues, these two countries. And after the first round, that doesn't make sense. And look, you could again, being devil's advocate, you can see some merit for the idea of more games between the biggest leagues, the biggest teams, because, like, you know, why not? It's, it can be exciting. But again, it, there, there has to be a reason for that, and it should have been discussed. But all of this happened sort of in a clandestine sort of way, you know, names like Project Gandalf or whatever <laughs> and documents appearing, et cetera, et cetera. It all looks very sinister. They, these people seem unable to have an open conversation in a way that makes it look like they're being shady, shifty, and have, have something to hide. And maybe they do because they're trying to nick the entire pie. So maybe it's that. If they had a, a kind of meaningful open dialogue, because we said this game means a lot to many, many people. If it was, I don't know, 
I don't want to like make it more than it is, but there's certain things in society, for example, um, uh, schools or whatever, that mean a lot to a lot of people. So we, we talk about them. We have these big discussions. And for hundreds of millions of people around the world, for better or for worse, this sport means a lot. So why don't we have a, a broader conversation? But anyway, talking about these iterations, yeah, there have been loads, and there have been these groups as well. And Nick, you remember G14, et cetera. Yeah. So you have these groups of these big teams that will have these conversations. And just moving it to where we are now, we can come back to that. In only the last few years, every time there is a negotiation for the Champions League rights, sort of TV negotiations, this starts appearing. So I remember one in about 2015, 16, after those guys had been arrested, um, uh, Michel Platini had been um, defrocked um, as the UEFA president. The clubs saw a chance and they tried it on them as well. And what they did, they managed to get a load of concessions from like a really bruised UEFA, um, a leaderless UEFA at the time. So the clubs ended up getting more money than before. The teams that were outside of England managed to secure some of England's TV revenue, which is the biggest in Europe. And that happened really quickly. And a lot of people were really frustrated about that. And then since then, we had the football leaks, which showed that, I guess, a modern day Silvio Berlusconi would be Florentino Perez, the empresario businessman that runs Real Madrid. He's always dreamed of a Super League and his plan was unveiled in the football leaks period, he had a, a project um, with a company called Key Capital Partners, and he wanted a closed league. Since then, we had the Americans who run the ICC, the International Champions Cup, that preseason in America, wanting to do something. And most recently, and this is the one I think has had the kind of most teeth, the most evolved, most detailed, has been one that has been pushed and promoted by the Glazer family, particularly Joel Glazer, with um, with the banks, uh, and also has um, John Henry and, and the Liverpool mob involved in creating a, a very detailed plan that also includes a type of financial fair play, how the revenue will be split, what the competition will look like, extremely detailed paperwork that leaked to the media uh, a month or two ago. And they were ready to push the button. They were so sure that they had this plan um, in place. There were letters of intent sent around, et cetera. And that was happening at the same time, Nick and Will, as Project Big Picture. I don't know if you remember. I mean, so much has happened in the last few months. This was a plan to basically seize control of the Premier League by these English teams. So we're at a point where the Super League idea has evolved to almost like a, a point where it's a turnkey operation. If they disagree with UEFA, they can press the button and they're off. That to me seems um, quite um, a nerve-wracking moment if you're the rest of football, right? Yeah, it was got to the extent, in fact, just a few months ago where the outgoing president of Barcelona actually announced that Barcelona were going to join a breakaway European Super League and had agreed to do so. I mean, which is extraordinary. They said, we're now going to do this. We're off. 
Obviously, that hasn't happened because we'll come on to the fact that actually, is it all just part of a negotiation for the inevitable restructuring of the Champions League in their favour? I would say yes. But for the president of Barcelona to announce we've agreed to join a breakaway Super League, and as Tarek rightly said, the same people who were sort of the architects of this latest iteration of a breakaway Super League, which is Joel Glazer and John Henry, were also the architects of Project Big Picture, which proposed giving all the power and and more of the money to the Premier League biggest clubs, principally, you know, Manchester United owned by the Glazers, Liverpool and those other big clubs, giving, uh, what was it, seven clubs effectively the power to make the decisions as opposed to 14. And quite rightly, this project picture was seen for what it was and widely derided and it will never get off the ground in the way that that they foresaw it. But this is, that absolutely clearly showed their intentions this is how much they care about the wider football. They don't. They just want the money, the power at national level and obviously at club football level. So I don't know, Will, what did you think of Project Big Picture as supporting a, a super club like Birmingham? Well, it just all felt a little bit rank, really, didn't it? Just it was like obviously the worst of times for football and then for those people to sort of see that as a power grab, it just... I mean, I'm quite naive at the best of times and I think uh, football can be this glorious, wondrous place. But I mean, that just showed it up to be what it really is, especially like Tarek said, with these owners that are only in it for business and only in it for the for the profit. I mean, that was the, the culmination of all that as well. Um, but just on the sort of current iteration that we've got for the Super League, we've spoke a lot, Nick, on this series, even about sort of American style franchises and especially about the NFL. But Tarrant, it sounds a lot like the NFL at the moment, like where obviously there's only certain franchises people can apply and get in that way and players go between top teams. And the NFL is absolutely thriving. It's just about to be on for its biggest TV deal and, and get even further. So is that a bad thing? I don't know. It might be. Uh, depends. Maybe from a financial point of view. Great. Bunch of people are going to make a load of money. <laughs> but, um, you know, if <laughs> good for them. But, you know, in terms of the actual event or whatever, is it not a bit dull? I don't know. Like, you know, we've got these local rivalries here, like the domestic game. When you get the biggest English game uh, or or Italian game, when they're playing each other, there is a different feel to this stuff. And also you can have too much of something as well, right? If if these guys are going to play each other, you know, year in, year out, the same group, will lose some of its sheen. Isn't sometimes the kind of scarcity value, the power? I mean, you only have to talk about the World Cup. It is a commercial and kind of popular behemoth because it is rare, right? Whatever you like to eat, if you had it every day, you're going to lose some of the taste for it. It's just like becomes bog standard and normal. And equally, all these super clubs, are they still going to be super if you're like the eighth or ninth or tenth or twelfth best team in the league? You're just an ordinary one member of the league. And that sort of... Um, the trophies you won and all those parades you had and everyone thinking you were the best, you kind of lose that when you say, well, look, I'm the 13th best team in a European league. That's not very exciting, is it? Um, but the plan I'd seen is, you mentioned the US sports. There is a bit of a difference between the two. The Florentino plan apparently has um, 20 teams um, and only includes them from the big big five leagues. Um and that would exclude some really giant teams. You know, one of the reasons for a Super League, I reckon, if you're going to have one or, or do something like this, is actually to there are some enormous teams in small markets with massive fan bases. You know, Celtic Rangers, Benfica, Ajax, Fenerbahce. You know, you would have thought they would have thought of 
those teams in order, even if they were looking at it from a purely commercial point of view, you would have thought they might have considered that, but they hadn't. So you have this sort of league with these 20 teams, um, and it's quite boring. The American uh, model, I understand, has a um, kind of a league element in the beginning. So you can see the US sports, you have those different um, leagues that will filter into a playoff scenario and then you have a knockout. That might be perhaps a bit more interesting. But again, if you only have the same group circulating year in, year out, I mean, who cares, Nick? Would you be interested? Would you like to watch that? Uh, absolutely not. And the thing about, Will, you're right, the NFL's just signed TV deals of of about, what is it, 110 billion dollars over the next decade or 11 years but that's to sort of slightly misunderstand that the nfl as a cultural touchstone within america is just a phenomenon and it's american phenomenon i mean the super bowl is every single year the most watched tv event in america by far nfl games get huge audiences it's a property it's arguably the biggest media property of any genre in the world in terms of but it's very much within the shores of America the Super Bowl will be watched by about between 100 and 114 million people that single fixture each year in America when the rest of the world combined you'll have a few million people watching it so basically and this is a fairly uh, simplistic summary but NFL is massively, massively important inside America and the rest of the world doesn't care about it at all. And so it's it's very valuable there. It's just a different thing and it's just not comparable in the same way. Obviously, everything that's happened, Nick, speaks for itself. And we all know that the owners are out of touch. But for it to collapse in 48 hours, I've seen people saying, you know, they knew this was going to happen, like the stock prices went up and stuff. Is there some dark arts to this at all? I don't think so. I've seen this idea that this is some sort of conspiracy, that something else is going on here that we don't know about, like a stock market play, which would be illegal and could lead to imprisonment if that were true. I don't think so. I think that the clubs themselves, driven primarily by Real Madrid and Barcelona in Spain, who were just terribly badly run clubs with a billion and 900 million euros of debt, respectively, are desperate in a pandemic to get a payday. And this thing guarantees them an immediate signing up payday of a couple of hundred million quid, plus a couple of hundred million quid apparently in TV revenues. So I think they and Juventus were really driving it last week. And they said to the English clubs, particularly, come on, this is now or never and they all jumped they jumped over the edge so it could be that it emerges as some weird other reason behind it I don't think so I just think this is a monumental error of judgment on the part of all of the clubs involved and it didn't take that long for them to realize and come out with their groveling apologies I mean did you see John Henry with his apology he looked like he was sitting in a crematorium you felt like those wooden doors behind him were going to open and he sort of go back into the flames and be consumed by his embarrassment. And then you've got even Joel Glazer came out. Joel Glazer never talks to the fans, came out. Cringing, embarrassing apology. So I don't think there's anything darker than the fact that they've made a monumental error, but we will see in the fullness of time. I'm quite used to our YouTube apologies, actually, so that they've very much uh, read the guidebook and took it very well there. John Henry did, at least. The turning points, obviously everyone was up in anger about it but for me I it felt like it really started to 
become a catalyst when Pep Guardiola spoke out so like defiantly against it in that press conference. Where do you think the turning point was? Yeah, for me, as soon as Pep Guardiola came out and said, you cannot have a competition without competition, you can't just buy success. I think that it was already badly wounded because of the intervention of politicians saying they were going to change the law because of fans, because of the almost universal disapproval. But yeah, once Guardiola had said that, that was hugely damaging. And then you had Marcus Rashford shortly afterwards tweeting, you had Luke Shaw coming out openly in social media saying, you know, I know this might get me into trouble with my employers, but I don't care, this is wrong. Uh, a wave of other players, managers, the pundits, uh, Gary Nevin Carroll on Monday night had been so against it. Broadcasters, Amazon coming out and saying, we've got nothing to do with this, because everyone's speculating, oh, they must have a broadcaster in place. And to my mind, that was one big flaw in it. This thing would only ever have worked if they'd had a broadcaster willing to pay about 4 billion euros a year. And there just wasn't any logical obvious broadcaster who was there was nobody who'd come out and said we are the broadcaster and if you don't have the broadcaster willing to take a massive gamble with enormous sums of money um, it was never going to work and when I talk about a gamble I mean four billion a year they're not going to sign up for one year alone because that's too much of a risk so supposing you've got a broadcaster committing say 12 billion euros for three years to a project that might get boycotted that might not make its money back that might not actually be that successful without the broadcaster it doesn't happen and they didn't have a broadcaster not signed up not confirmed so I think it was always doomed to failure from a purely financial point of view. Do you think even in sort of like in an alternative world that even if they had the sponsors had the broadcaster announced it all Sunday then woke up Monday morning to that reaction. Do you even think it would have fallen on its arse then as well? No, I think if they'd had a broadcaster already signed up with a contract and they had announced, okay, Apple TV are backing us, Apple have got $100 billion of reserves and they are committing $20 billion to it over the next few years, here's the contracts, it's done. That's kind of a fait accompli then. Then it just gets into legal wrangling between FIFA and UEFA over whether they get kicked out of their tournaments and, and it, it just becomes bogged down in legal arguments but fundamentally if the money was there then the money will talk and ultimately they could just announce it as this is it it's done but that wasn't what happened I mean there's so many things wrong with it we don't even need to spell them out the very core of of what's wrong with it is that it's so anti-competitive football is built on the idea of a pyramid and the fact that the small guys one day theoretically can get to the top through good management through brilliant skill through clever marketing through whatever it is and and this this kills that because it would be essentially a closed shop of 15 teams in there forever or at least the first 23 years and then five who come in and out I mean it it just is anti-competition it's anti the spirit of everything football should stand for so there's so many things wrong with it but even below that there were other huge flaws in it the German club said they weren't going to get involved and that's because of the 50 plus one ownership structure in German football and kudos to them for that Paris Saint-Germain was sitting on the sidelines and perhaps weren't going to be involved so actually you were only going to have these 12 clubs plus three others who were the three others going to be the Portuguese said they weren't going to be involved so you might have had what Ajax or somebody from the Netherlands and somebody from Russia and perhaps somebody from Hungary or somebody from Scandinavia so suddenly if that's who 13 14 and 15 are and then you've got five other clubs who are lesser clubs this Super League suddenly becomes not giants against each other every week but Dynamo Kiev versus Milan one week and Arsenal versus Bate Borisov the next week. This is hardly the mega club Super League that we were 
led to believe this thing was going to be. I mean, if if you're talking about Milan Arsenal, which one day in the not too distant past might have been quite a big fixture, that's Europa League fixture these days. It's a poor fixture. This is not what an all singing, all dancing Super League should be. It's just, it's flawed, totally flawed. I can't believe that they jumped over the cliff on Sunday uh, and it was deliciously hilarious as they scrambled for the door on Tuesday as the whole thing collapsed. But it's just, the whole thing has just been extraordinary and does leave questions still about the future of club football. Uh, What does happen next? Is this the sort of reboot that we've been talking about in this podcast season you know is this the moment where we're the change yeah do we actually now get a football ombudsman in britain do we get changes in regulation so that these bodies who run the competitions i.e fifa uefa don't also oversee the regulatory side of it is this the turning point now where fans demand uh, ownership where they the fans have a greater thing even as we record you've got manchester united fans invading the carrington training complex on the first team players pitch, you know, a banner outside the front door saying it's us who will decide when you play. I mean, this has changed the way that we are all thinking about football. This has become a global news story and it's time now to actually not let this moment pass, but to grab onto it and use this as a debate and a genuine turning point for the game that we all care about so much. So just finally on that then, obviously there's so many different ways that this could go. Reform has been spoken about. So you've been across, I mean, not quite a bigger story as this over the last 30 years, but there's been different inklings over the years. What do you think will actually happen? Will we even get more fan representation on boards? What will happen? You'd have to hope so. I think, I mean, like you say, we've talked about reform in football and governance reform for as long as I've been doing this job, 25 years. It's never happened. We've also had threats of Super Leagues as long as I've been in this job. You know, we talked earlier in this episode about media partners back in 98, and it's never happened. It's always, always been just a bargaining tool. This one was different. It looked like they were going to actually try and break away this time. And it, again, it hasn't happened. So in answer to your question, I would say you hope for the best and expect absolutely bobbins. There we go, another football uncovered in the books. Massive thanks to Tarrett. I feel like I've learned a lot today. The football of future, is it bright? What? Maybe, hopefully. Uh, We'll still have football. If you've enjoyed the episode, please go over to iTunes, rate us five stars, drop us a review and a rating. It helps us out enormously. And if you want to go follow Nick, go over to Sporting Intel and give him a follow as well. We'll be back very soon. Thank you very much for listening to Football Uncovered.